We are going to be talking about giving for the next few minutes on WGTD's morning show and talking about the way in which more and more of us are giving in more and more interesting and varied ways. That is, there are all kinds of different ways, and some of them actually fairly sophisticated, in which we can take our resources and give them to, uh, to worthy causes. And in some respects, uh, it can be done uh, very simply and as was d- once done in the past, or there are all kinds of even groundbreaking ways in which this kind of work can be accomplished. And the whole world and landscape of philanthropy is explored in a fascinating new book, uh, which is brought to us by Town & Country called The Guide to Intelligent Giving, Make a Difference in the World and in Your Own Life. Uh, the author of the book is Joanna Croats, who is a journalist who has written extensively uh, about this very issue, a contributing editor uh, for Town & Country, and she's written for many other entities as well, including the New York Times, Money Magazine, Chicago Magazine, and uh, has, has done a great deal to help people think about this issue uh, in a little more far-reaching fashion. And uh, I'm very excited for the next few minutes to be able to talk with her about her intriguing book, The Guide to Intelligent Giving. Joanna Croats, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Good morning. That was a very generous intro. Thank you. Um, one of the things I want to ask you about, speaking of generosity, is the very first line of the foreword, which isn't written by you, but rather by the editor-in-chief of Town & Country, Pamela Fiore, when she says, no other nation in the world is as generous as the United States of America. That's a really strong statement to make. And, uh, you know, it's probably the kind of statement that shouldn't be just thrown around without some facts to back it up. I wonder if you could just speak to a moment about uh, the truth of those words as, as, as you understand them. No, thanks, Greg. That gives me a good opportunity to paint something of a picture about American charitable giving by individuals. I'm not talking about corporations or foundations now, which is another whole story, but or f- family foundations is included. But charitable giving by individuals in this country is at record levels, even in this desperate climate. So uh, for 2000, although it has dropped a little, so for 2007, um, charitable giving was uh, $314 billion dollars. It was the first time it jumped over $300 billion. And for 2008, which we have the latest figures that came out a couple of weeks ago, mid-June, it has dropped about 5% um, uh, calculating for inflation, and that's to 300, nearly $308 billion. So it's still over $300 billion, even in this just horrendous economic freefall, which says a great deal about the generosity you're talking to. So that's a good and a bad statement um, because America is the most generous in the world, but that is also because so much of it is private giving. And we are the most affluent in, in the world as individuals and as a country, and therefore our budgets for giving tend to be higher than anywhere else, as you would probably agree. Um, but then the government doesn't step in in terms of social services and medical services as they do in Europe or they do in Scandinavia. And that's what lead, le- leads to such a high level of charitable giving. A lot of it is a tradition of capitalism giving back as opposed to the government taking care of its citizens. Right. So uh, this isn't just a matter—I mean, I, I guess the, the one thing I was wondering about is 
I mean, it is no surprise to me that if you total up the amount of dollars or the amount of money that Americans collectively give uh, in philanthropic uh, uh, efforts that that we would outstrip any other nation. But we have, by quite a large margin, most of the money in our country. Um, in terms of the proportion of per capita, are we still impressive givers? Yeah, I don't have it compared to, I don't have that figure for you, per capita compared to Europe. I mean, average giving in this country is um, something like 1000 or $2,000, between one and $2,000 per capita. But that, that's a kind of meaningless statistic because we have Bill Gates giving hundreds of billion dollars, and we have people who earn under $25,000 a year still giving $1,000 a year. You know, so it just depends on your character and your passion and your sense of strategic involvement. Um, so what it is per capita in Europe is, is very different, again, because there are government services and because there isn't the tax structure hmm. that we have in this country, which it has been an inducement, has been an incentive for people to give. And that was done years ago specifically for getting people engaged in giving. You know, the tax, the tax deductions that we have for charity giving in this country have been done for that reason. They don't exist uh, by happy accident. They're there by design. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and again, that's a way for the government to say the private sector needs to step up. That's the American way. Of course, the heart and soul of your book is about how the landscape of philanthropy itself uh, is really changing in some dramatic and exciting ways. At one point, you say philanthropy has been changing with the times, a buzz with new energy and options. Uh, tell us about several of the trends which are really helping shape some of these new ways in which philanthropy is is playing out uh, in America. Sure. I mean, to, just to start this off, I was at an uh, event last evening, a dinner with some philanthropists, and one of the consultants was saying, well, philanthropy has turned into this word that people don't really like. You know, it sounds like a lot of rich people sitting around, and, and uh, I'm going to start using the word giving and charitable giving. And my response was, take back the word. Don't let it have that d- definition. You know, it is not about rich people. It is not about how much money you have. Philanthropy, of course, means from the Greek, love of mankind. I would quickly hasten to say humankind at this point, but it is not at all about money. So some of the ways things are changing, the biggest and most dramatic change in philanthropy is that people are giving while they're still alive. It is a huge difference. Um, People left money when they died, and that money was managed by trustees or second generation and did not really come close to donor intent to what the person giving the money wanted it to do as, as, as much as it does when someone is hands-on. So that's the next change. When you have the money that you're giving, or the skill, or the talent, or the um, time, and time, by the way, is the most precious resource, when you give all that and it's your time, your money, you tend to get involved. It is hands-on. So we now have this huge landscape, as you put it, that is about, the metrics of giving. How do you define success? What does it mean to move the needle? And all that is changing because people are giving while they're still alive. We then also have a whole mess of people getting involved in giving who did not used to have the money or the wherewithal to do so. Women would be one, minorities would be another, people who earn money as opposed to people who inherited money would be a third. And all this is changing the ground and the terrain of philanthropy. Hmm. Uh, you call it at one point newfound generosity. 
<laughs> and 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 that's uh, that and that much of this generosity is indeed flowing from this new generation of of affluence and it's it's gratifying to know that that's true because uh, of course if you watch uh, some kind of uh, program like uh, the real housewives of blah 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 and it's uh, it appears at a glance to be a, a bunch of rich ladies sitting around talking about uh, their manicures and their furs and whatever and and who do not seem engaged in what you're just now describing it's gratifying to know that in fact out there money is being spent on something besides yachts well to that point i don't know if you um have seen uh television lately but on june 24th which was thursday night last um there was the debut of a no wednesday night last sorry there was the debut of a program called the philanthropist (laughs) And it is now a series that is on uh, network television about a guy wandering around with billions of dollars trying to make a difference. It's kind of marrying the Raiders of the Lost Ark with, um, I don't know, the millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> and probably dating myself to say that. But there, there you go. Um, somehow we have this uh, uh, aura around giving that did not used to be there. And I'm sure it has something to do with people like Bill Gates and Jeffrey Skoll, who are out in uh, Silicon Valley and Seattle, earning money through very cool, geeky tech things, you know. And that's become a way to stand out of the crowd and say this is what we need to do with our, with our wealth. But um, in terms of uh, um, other generosity, um, I, I think, again, we, we spend so much time in the media looking at the scams and at the the bad apples, the bad actors, and they are really minuscule, but they look exciting. It's somehow a gotcha uh, moment to say this is where philanthropy isn't doing well, and it's not such a good story when, um, when you don't hear about that. As, as to your point about the, the reality shows and the housewives and stuff like that, there are so many women. I mean, this is a particular passion of mine because I'm going around the country speaking about advocating for women and giving more than any other kind of cohort and women are just completely under the radar. They're giving. There's a woman in Chicago who's given a hundred million dollars. Nobody's ever heard of. Hmm. I don't think that would happen to Bill Gates. Right. As a matter of fact, some of the most compelling uh, quotes from your book come from women who have done some very, very important things. And uh, and in many respects, this is more exciting than than any other aspect of philanthropy right now. I'm quite intrigued, for instance, by. The words we hear from philanthropist Abby Disney, the grandniece of Walt Disney, uh, granddaughter of Roy Disney, and uh, her idea about what can give someone's giving uh, real focus. Can you tell our listeners about her kind of provocative thoughts about this? Yeah, Abby is um, something of a hero of mine. She's just made a life out of uh, philanthropy. She has a a family foundation called the Daphne Foundation in New York. Um, She says she advises her kids about how to choose their cause by thinking about what makes them a little angry, which I think is a wonderful way to to think it through. Think about something that really kind of gets your goat, that makes you feel indignant, and that's where to put your passion and your energies. And she also says you have to commit. You have to uh, work with people on the ground as a partner. You know, there's, we have lost that Lady Bountiful kind of image somewhere back in the 90s, if not before. It is really about a collaboration and a partnership. And people who are on the grassroots front lines doing the work know a lot about where need is and where change can happen and how you can make a difference rather than people who have the deep pockets. So that partnership is, is, is critical. 
And Abby does a, a, a great job about that. You have a, a native daughter, by the way, uh, from Milwaukee, who's doing extraordinary work, and that's Jennifer Buffett, um, mm. who grew yes. up in Milwaukee. She um, is married to Warren Buffett's son, Peter, and they run a foundation called the Novo Foundation, which is dedicated to empowering women and girls um, around the world. And Jennifer's doing it also extraordinary work, thoughtful, strategic work by partnering with uh, organizations like Women for Women International, which helps community leaders and uh, survivors of war and women who are um, creating businesses around the world. Hmm. Uh, at one point, you talk about the importance of story, that in so many cases, what uh, sets these wheels in motion will be when uh, a compelling story is is told or or seen or shared, and uh, and and someone will realize that 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 something needs to be done. I guess that you you begin chapter one with these words: wherever you go, whomever you talk to, the path of today's philanthropy invariably starts with someone's story. A moment when overwhelming need meets an outstretched hand. And one of the things you describe so well in your book is how we now live. Uh, in an age in which we are so much more aware of the pain that is around the world. And these stories that uh, generations ago would have been utterly unknown to us are now, in many cases, as close as our, our television screens. Yeah, it's pro and con again, isn't it? It's the world we live in. There is some some phenomenon, I mean, back to the trend of the different kinds of giving, we now have um, seen the rise of something called flash giving, which is what happens when there's some kind of disaster that flashes, as it were, across our screens, um, whether that be psychological or visual, and giving spikes. You know, you see this uh, surge online and in mailed-in money and in cash and and help flowing to whatever the need is, be it tsunami or, or Hurricane Katrina or the earthquake in China. And this flash giving is with us now. There is a whole cohort of people who give only when there is some kind of uh, horrendous event. And you see it mostly online. They tend to be people who come to the web and donate when there is a crisis, and then when things die down, they they kind of back up and don't give as much. So that's added to the kinds of giving um, that we do. But this idea, the story, I mean, it's human nature, isn't it? It's very hard to get your your mind or your heart or your 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 pocketbook around something called world hunger. <laughs> it's overwhelming, it's daunting, it's intimidating, and it's very hard to get engaged. But if you have um, a, a, a house down the block where you know there's a family where they don't have enough to eat, um, that's a very different kind of, um, kind of effect. So I always feel, and I know it for myself and I know it from the people I talk to, that you need that personal sense, that engagement, that emotional moment that says, this is where I want to put my energies and my resources, and then you can become strategic. I mean, one of the stories I tell in the book is then there are some, there are stories about celebrities as well as people, you know, like you and me who are all wielding the power of one, but um, one of the celebrities in the book is Gary Sinise, who Mm. is, of course, the star of CSI New York and was in Forrest Gump, and He's been um, helping in terms of touring military installations for years, way before, for instance, he played Lieutenant Dan in Forrest Gump. Um, it's just something that came with his family, he told me. So he went over to Iraq on a second tour there and saw some soldiers 
giving school supplies and some things to some kids in a village, and it just, this is that moment. <laughs> he saw an outstretched hand. He saw people helping, and it, a light bulb went on. He got introduced to uh, Lauren Hildebrand, who's the author of Sea Biscuit, and the two of them started a charity, an organization, shipping school supplies to soldiers in Iraq to give to kids. Wasn't that thoughtful? Oh, I love that. I mean, the fact that he wanted to enhance what, the, the good that was already being done, I mean, that he saw in terms of interactions between American soldiers and Iraqi children, in a sense, he didn't want to pull anything away from that. He wanted to make that still more potent and powerful, and Operation Iraqi Children uh, became a tool towards that laudable end. Right, and then the story goes further for me in terms of the lessons that it that it sends in that he got ahead of himself. So his... Uh, I mean, how thoughtful to be anonymous, to allow that moment between the soldier and the kids to happen, and he kind of facilitated that and, 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 and underwrote it. And then all these boxes started arriving. He could not handle the pipeline. It got bigger than he expected. So he had more equipment, more things, had people he needed to pack and, and ship and how it was going to be delivered. You get into a, you know, this is great, this charitable moment, but then you actually have on-the-ground logistics that need to be attended to if you're going to be effective, if you're not going to waste your resources. And he ended up partnering with another uh, organization, People for People International, which was founded by actually Dwight Eisenhower, and they're now delivering his uh, boxes. Hmm. So uh, it, it's to me the lesson is the perfect arc where it starts from that passion and then you end up needing something that has to do with how do we do this effectively. One of my, uh, my, one of my favorite uh, stories in the book is also about Oh, and now I'm not finding the story, but it's the gentleman. Oh, here it is, David Richard. Uh huh. Wheelchairs for Humanity. Absolutely, uh-huh. and uh, who was traveling uh, through Guatemala and saw a sight which galvanized him to uh, uh, to an effort which is so inspiring. D- Dave Richard really is. A n- there are a bunch of heroes, I guess, in the book, um, or people who certainly felt that way to me. So he was a salesperson for golf equipment when he went down to Guatemala and saw this woman who was 30-something years old hauling herself by her arms by the side of the road because she had been paralyzed uh, with polio at the age of eight, and that's the way she'd been ever since. And he came back and refit some wheelchairs to take down, and that was his first trip down to uh, Guatemala. He took down about a dozen wheelchairs. There are, there are, there are so many wheelchairs tossed away, and they cost, you know, on average, the, the inexpensive ones, a couple of hundred bucks in America which is beyond the income of most people in developing countries. Um, so there are hundreds of thousands of people who are living their lives in, on a pallet or in a bed, unable to get around. And Dave has now galvanized shipping companies, airlines, um, physical therapy groups, uh, a whole mess of people to get these wheelchairs to people around the world. And he talks eloquently about how you can't just travel and dump them off. You have to fit a person. It's a very complicated situation. So he brings doctors, he brings uh, athletes who are in the Paralympics with him, and it's a marvelous operation. It operates on a shoestring. I mean, he has been mostly with volunteers, and the organization has very little money. Hmm. One of the uh, suggestions among many, uh, I mean, in terms of strategies, is that perhaps people should think seriously about focusing their gifts rather than scattering them, although scattering them is certainly another option. But, but by focusing your gifts and, per, and perhaps on 
one aspect of of the, of of the of of human life or a very particular sort of need as we were just talking about uh that 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 can be a way in which you can really see change for the better which is the greatest feeling in the world well it's not only about the money and the resources although of course if you have a hundred dollars and it goes to one cause it's better it will have a bigger impact than if you give ten dollars to ten different causes so that's the you know that's just the basic math of it. But the other part of this is that if you focus on one or two different places, causes, uh, organizations, you develop a relationship. And that is something that engages you. you. You can see, the, as you put it, the effects of your work, but also you start having a relationship with the mission, with the people who are at the organization or the institution that you're funding, and you become emotionally involved so that you get that back. It isn't just putting the money in. It's the rewards and the joy that you get from having done that, which are significant. So focusing has payback in many different ways. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's, I really hadn't stopped to think about that, that when you are focused on a particular need, you end up also being able to really understand that need. I mean, you you are not just giving your money away towards it, but you engage with the issue itself. You can come to understand it on, on a very, very profound level, which uh, has such value in and of itself. Well, this might be a good juncture to, to kind of just define the difference between charity and philanthropy. And um, it, it's useful to remember charity is giving that starts from an impulse. You know, someone comes to the door and says, I'm here for to collect money to cure AIDS, or I'm here because the food shelter down the block is struggling and we you know so you give 10 bucks or 25 bucks or even more and that's the end of it there's there's it's an emotional impulsive kind of act philanthropy is the next step where you say wait a minute was that really a good way to change what it is i'm trying to fund i mean if i give 25 bucks to someone who appears at my door for the people down the block who are hungry is that going to help people, or should I be focusing on job training, which will get them income, and then I don't have to give the 25 bucks to put food on their table? So it's a way to say, let me step back. This is what happened to Gary Sinise. Let me step back. Let me think about what it means to actually move the needle and be strategic and effective. And philanthropy is learned behavior. It's not the easiest thing in the world. It's tough. You can't just give, whether it be time, talent, or treasure. You have to think about it. I thought a really striking uh, phrase uh, that you give us is in telling the story of Astrid Hager, if uh-huh. I'm pronouncing that correctly, when you Astrid, say uh-huh. that quite, quite often the cause chooses you rather than the other way around. Yes, absolutely. Astrid is, is a remarkable story. She is out in Los Angeles. She's a uh, pediatrician, and as a young woman in 1983, she volunteered to uh, help at a clinic at UCLA Hospital. And at that time, children were being brought into the clinic who had been sexually abused, and she was treating them. And she found that because there had to be court hearings and testimony and all kinds of legal falderall, that these kids who had been traumatized and abused were being examined repeatedly, routinely, over and over again, every time there was some kind of court hearing or testimony or some expert was tapped to come in and, and testify. And it just horrified her. It just appalled her. So she pioneered uh, video documentation for the kids so that the first time they were examined, a video was taken, and then every time there was any kind of hearing or court case, 
there would be this video um, that was put into evidence. And she got a law passed in the state of California permitting this so that it was something that could be used in a legal context. And then after that, she got that law passed in every state in the union. So this was a one-woman campaign, and she's working today now uh, at UCLA at uh, something called VIP Violence Intervention Program that is helping kids and family and elder abuse, which she sees coming down the pike in a big way. Hmm. So that's a, a way of kind of thinking about, uh, I suppose in, in some ways we might think about thinking about the battle, uh, thinking about the war versus the, the, the individual battle. And I suppose that's a difference, too, that for some people it will be very important to engage with that immediate day-to-day sort of need um, versus others who really are, are more interested in, in thinking about bigger issues and more pervasive problems that uh, probably can only be adequately dealt with uh, o- over time. I mean, I can see how one effort uh, would would maybe kind of bring a, a fuller sort of satisfaction uh, depending on, on the way that person happens to be wired. Yeah, well, we need some of each, don't we? I mean, if someone's standing in front of me and is starving, I'm not going to say, gee, why don't you go get trained for a job? <laughs> you know, I need to put some eggs in front of that, that person and, 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 and take care of that immediate need first. And actually, I've heard uh, interviews with Melinda and Bill Gates where she talks about that, where he's always focused on the strategic, and she's saying, you know, you have to bandage the wound first. So it takes some of each, and it takes different kinds of people to do that. Um, but in the end, I, I always think of something Jeffrey Canada says, who is a guy who runs a um, children, the Children's um, Zone, Harlem Children's Zone in New York, which is dedicated to trying to help kids get through the system um, who are underprivileged. And he says, I don't want to feed a hungry child. I want to stamp out hunger. And that's the difference between charity and philanthropy. On the other hand, you do have to put that plate on the table. Hmm. We should explain that your book is uh, not only full of many of these heartwarming stories about persons engaged uh, in, in giving and some of the ways in which that giving can be uh, strategic. I mean, it's interesting. That's kind of a cold-sounding word. But, it is, isn't it? But, but it's, imp- it's important. I mean, it, it, it's, it's about doing greater good. And, uh, and, and one really has to then think about it in order to, 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 to accomplish more. But at any rate, um, your book then is, is full of all kinds of valuable information about uh, some of the ways in which this can be done. Um, sketch for our listeners some of, the th- some of the questions that are worth raising or, or aspects of giving that are worth exploring, which you guide them through in your book. Well, there's, um, there's questions to ask a nonprofit organization before you write a check of any kind, and I always advise people to spend some time either volunteering or attending meetings or talking to people before you do that. I mean, you, you need to know whether the mission is a good fit. It isn't necessarily that they're not doing it right, whatever that means, or not doing well. It's just that it's a relationship, and like any relationship, it needs to be a good fit. But once that's happened, there are some questions to ask before you actually write the check, and that is, to the organization, are you willing to share audited financial statements? You know, can I see your books, in other words? Another question to ask is, who is on your board, and, 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 and how can I talk to them? And that means these are the people who are the stewards of the organization. You want to hear what they're, um, what they're like, what their skills are, how they see the future. 
Um, another question to ask is who is your senior management? And that would be the executive director or someone like that or the CFO of the organization. And what are they paid? <laughs> what kind of experience do they have? Again, these are all like interview questions. You're, uh, you're interviewing the organization to see if it meets your standards. And then how do you allocate your resources for the organization, which, of course, would be key. We want to make sure it's not all going to something that you don't believe in or that isn't worthwhile. And then finally, where do you get your money? How do you fundraise? How do you grow the organization? How do you get the lifeblood that comes in and goes out? Is it from government funding? Is it from private donations? Do you market? All of those questions are useful to ask. Hmm. It's a fascinating book, and uh, it really gets all of us thinking about uh, the idea of, of, of legacy, of, of, of making a difference, and, and giving us a, a sense of, of the many different faces which philanthropy can have. Well, to, to that idea of legacy, I think um, someone told me recently, and I've now adopted because I thought it was so clever, um, a, a philanthropy consultant I've talked to said that uh, she asks her clients first thing before they sign on the dotted line, before she does any work with them at all, whatever she's going to do, she says to them, would you please write down your obituary? <laughs> it's hmm. kind of creepy, but it's also very effective. You know, what is it you want to be known for? And it's usually not the 40 business deals that you accomplished in your life. You know, it doesn't come down to that. But it kind of sits you down and says, okay, I am going to die. I have to face that. What is it I want to leave behind? What is, it my, what is that legacy? So it's a very useful kind. I mean, you don't have to write necessarily a formal, you know, John Smith, blah, blah, but you should be thinking, what do you want to be known for? Right, and do you want to be known for uh, how big your yacht was, or do you want to know about uh, the, the, the impact which you had uh, on your community and on your world? And getting your kids engaged, hmm. which is always a good thing. Well, that and much more explored in this book called The Guide to Intelligent Giving, uh, the Town and Country Guide to Intelligent Giving. It's a, a Hearst book, uh, a division of Sterling Publishing, the author, Joanna Croats. Joanna Croats, I have enjoyed this very much. It's given me and I'm sure our listeners much to think about, and I appreciate you uh, uh, speaking with me today on The Morning Show. My thanks to you. Thank you, and I have a website if anyone wants more, which is my name.com, com. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for being such a thoughtful interviewer. You've obviously spent a lot of time looking through it. <laughs> 